as I mentioned, we are in uh, Ezra chapter 8, and we're in the middle of the chapter, which more than likely means that we are in the middle of a story. In the middle of the story, the account that we are in is this second wave of Jewish migration. Remember, we're talking about 60 years or so after chapter 1. Chapter 1, there was the first wave of migration. The people came back, they settled in the land, they began to, began to do some things, and that was the first six or so chapters. When we come to chapter 7, now it's a new generation of people. They had not come the first time that uh, the Jews began to make their way back uh, to the land of Jerusalem, but now God was stirring their hearts and they were preparing to return. And primarily they were led by a fellow by the name of Ezra. And so God had stirred his people. In addition, we saw that God had stirred a new king. Not a Christian king, not a Jewish king, just a king. Uh, And God had stirred his heart too, that fellow by the name we saw of Artaxerxes. And now there's about 5,000 people led by Ezra that are about to set out. But before they get in the bus and they begin to head to Jerusalem, before they do anything, they seek the Lord in prayer and fasting, as we're going to see. So look at verse 21. It says this, that Ezra says, And then I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our good God is for us. Let me reread that. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And so we fasted and we implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Now, that phrase or something like that phrase should be very familiar to you, that phrase for the hand of our good Lord is upon us, because again and again and again, that is coming up in the book. This is probably, I didn't count it, but this is probably the sixth time, I believe it appears nine times in the book, this idea that God's hand was on these people, and thus they were accomplishing the things that they were accomplishing because God was blessing them. And so here we see that same thing happen again. But here is Ezra leading these children of Israel, and now they're going to have to trust the truth of that statement. Because they're about to go, it says that they come to the edge of the river Ahava, and they're about to make a 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. And they've been telling anyone that would listen, hey, God's going to be with us. God is good. I suspect that Ezra and some of those leaders that we looked at last week is going to people and say, God's going to be with us. He's going to bless us. God is good. And his good hand is going to be upon us. Now they're about to set out and they got to believe whether that is actually true. This type of a passage, this is a passage that speaks of the difference between textbook knowledge and rubber meets the road knowledge. And I suspect all of you in here or many of you in here, you have quite a bit of textbook knowledge. You have Bible knowledge. You've learned your Bible. You know the facts, ma'am, and all these sorts of things. But now you've got to live it out. And you've got to put your faith into action. And here Ezra is going to be that. Because it's one thing to say, God will be with us. Or God's going to take care of us. But it's, an actual, it's another thing actually altogether to set out on the journey trusting that truth. Now, As we're going to see a little bit later, these fellows here that are going out They're heading out with millions and millions of dollars worth of wealth and vessels. Just skip down for a second to verse 26. It says, I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 100 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze 
as precious as gold. And it's estimated that all those numbers and measurements that were given there, it's estimated that that was nearly $5 million worth of vessels and gold and silver and so on that they were being sent out with. And they're being sent out with this over an area of land which was notorious for its marauding bands. So here are these guys that know that they're going out, if you will, as sitting ducks. Because there are hoodlums that are lying in wait for the opportunity to rob and steal from any that are passing through. Now the custom of the day would have been for King Artaxerxes to send an armed group or a band of armed military men. Perhaps as large as the caravan itself. As many perhaps as 5,000 men going out with these 5,000 people to make sure that they make it to where they have to go safely. But for whatever reason, Artaxerxes didn't suggest that. He didn't throw it out there. And I, I suspect Ezra was saying, please, offer, offer, just offer me some help. My wife and I and a group of us, we traveled through Russia just about two or three years after communism uh, fell or con the communists fell in that country. And we're traveling through Russia and visiting youth prison camps. Uh, it was a group, about 30 of us. It wasn't my wife and I. Um, traveling through visiting and we're, we're going into these prison camps and we're telling them about Jesus one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life because nobody ever knew about Jesus uh, in these prison camps because of communism and so on and we're going in and we're doing these things but we're traveling over we would take 17 hour train rides we'd get to a prison we would do what we were going to do get on a train go another 20 hours to the next prison camp through Siberia it was pretty cool actually when you think about it as a young guy uh, we put all of our stuff in storage got out of our one apartment had nowhere to live and just traveled through Siberia for the summer and then we came home and found a place to live. So it was kind of cool. Anyway, I'm very spiritual, as you can imagine. Uh, but, but anyway, we're traveling with money to pay for 30 people for the food they're going to eat, the hotels they're going to eat. We had lots and lots of money on us, as you can imagine. We go on our mission trips now. We've got, we got to bring all the money with us. And we split it up amongst all the people so that if one of us gets robbed, well, at least we've got some more money for the rest of us. You know, tough luck for you. You know, you should have looked tougher, whatever it may be. And so they sent with us, Russia knew this, in this situation, so they sent with us an armed military guard to go with us to all these places. This poor fellow, he didn't have a chance because there was 30 missionaries that wanted to see this sergeant guy converted to Jesus. And so every train ride, so what's your name? You know, you're like, my name is Sven, you know, and you're like, all right, well, good. Sven, do you know Jesus? And we would just talk to this guy the entire time there. But they send this armed military. And I suspect that Ezra is hoping Artaxerxes will ask. What we're going to see is there's nothing wrong with, excuse me, with Ezra accepting the help. We see a little bit later, we'll, we'll see it when we get there, in the book of Nehemiah, the king offers Nehemiah an armed guard, and Nehemiah says, sure, I'll take an armed guard, that's great. And he says, man, that's awesome, Lord, thanks for providing that for us. But here now, Ezra, he would have to actually ask for the armed guard. And for him to do so, he feels would be dishonoring to God because he's been telling everybody that God's going to watch out for us and God's going to protect us and he's going to bring us to the place that we need to go as long as he gives us a military help. Now see, that diminishes who God is and what God was going to do. And so he cannot, he feels that he cannot actually ask because it would belie his repeated statements that God is actually with us. I love what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said this, he said, to ask for soldiers would have been to make a tacit confession of some doubt in his own heart as to the ability or to the willingness of God to protect his enterprise. 
And so here they are about to set out, and Ezra takes a big, deep sort of swallow, and he says, okay, God, it's time for you to show up. Bible commentator Adam Clark, he said this, he said, this good man had more anxiety for the glory of God than for his own personal safety. And that's quite a statement. He had more anxiety for the glory of God. God's name, God's work, God's power would be diminished if he went and asked for this military help, so he won't. And he said, you know what, I'll take the risk personally. Verse 21, let me read it again. It says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves and our children and all of our goods, because I was ashamed, they asked the king, for a band of soldiers to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our good God is on us. Or something like that. I keep mis- And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And so we fasted and we implored our God for this. And he listened to our entreaty. Now, in making this decision, the decision that we're going to trust God and not ask for the help of the king, Ezra is really putting his faith on the line. Now, let's be honest. Isn't that truly what faith is? That we have to put our faith on the line? Is it really faith to step out and do something only after we've run all of the numbers and everything works out perfectly and we know that it's going to work? Is that really faith? Is it really faith when we go forth when we're convinced everything is going to work out exactly as we have planned it to work out? Is it really faith? Noah spent a hundred years readying a ship in faith before a drop of rain ever fell. Ever fell. Not in that storm, but ever. And yet he built this ship for over a hundred years. That was faith. Abraham left all that he knew and he went out. And the scripture says that he did so not knowing where he was going. That's faith. Ruth said to her mother-in-law, whither thou goest, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. That's faith. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he declares this. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. And then he'll add these words, verse 2. He says, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. And I would add to that, and so do the people of the present. It's by faith that we receive our commendation from God, because God is ever calling his people to step out in faith, trusting him to show up. I would suggest this to you. If you're not being stretched in your faith, then you're not walking as God would have you to walk. That he continually wants us to come to the edge, or just over the edge, I should say, of our comfort zone. He wants to stretch us so that we are a people that are continually walking in faith. He's ever calling his people to step out in faith, trusting that he will show up. And so, as we go back to the passage, notice what Ezra does. He calls the people to a fast. Verse 21, he says, then I proclaimed a fast. Verse 23, and so then we did fast. Fasting is sort of a lost art in Christendom, at least in American Christianity. We don't like to deny our flesh. We don't like going without. We don't like taking the time to seek the Lord and cry out to the Lord because we are men and women of action. We want to be doing something. I don't want to be sitting here by the side of some river. Come on, we got a long journey. I can hear myself saying these things. We got a long journey. We got to get on the road. Let's get to it. There's lots to do. I've come to find that fasting in my life and in the lives of many people I know is one of the last things that we look to do in our spiritual walks. And typically, 
we turn to fasting as somewhat of a means of last resort. Oh my, so-and-so is so sick and the prognosis is not good. We need to fast. We need to pray. It's the, the means of last resort. And frankly, if you look at this, it seems like that's what's going on with Ezra. He's up against it. He's there at the edge of this river and he knows he's about to go out into unsafe territory and the king never said, hey, I'll send you a military thing too just to make sure you get there. And now he's got to trust God. He's up against it there. And so he calls the people to fast. He says, oh dear, we're in trouble. We have to fast. We have to pray. So let's ask this question. Why do we fast? And what's the purpose of fasting? Is fasting designed to change the mind of God? I really want this, and so I'm going to fast for it. Is it to get God to to do what we're asking him to do? Is it to get him to say, you know, well, I was going to do A, but, you know, you went without chocolate for a whole day, so I guess I'll do B. Is that why we fast? Fasting, and if you're not familiar, fasting is going without something. Typically, it refers to going without food, but it's going without something for a period of time. Fasting is not linked to God's action. Fasting doesn't change God. Fasting changes us. Fasting is simply a means by which we can use the time and the effort we would have otherwise spent on meeting our physical needs to instead concentrate on our spiritual needs. And what fasting does is it provides us with a devoted time to strengthen our resolve to walk in the Spirit. It provides us with time and energy to focus our attention on spiritual things and to seek the Lord's wisdom. And what it does is it puts us, because we have the time to seek Him, it puts us in tune with Him and also with His mind. Now Ezra knows what he needs to do. He needs to lead the people on this 900-mile journey through this rough uh, area there. He knows what he needs to do. He has to go out trusting God that he will protect his people. And he knows in his heart this, because that's what God had stirred him and the other 5,000 people to do. But Ezra, like so many of us, he can't get his head to match up with his heart. And he can't get his feet to go ahead and start doing what his heart is telling him he has to do, and that is walk in trust. And so what he does is he and all the people begin to seek the Lord. And they begin to meditate on God. And this is, I think, a key thing that you can do when you are fasting and spending that time in fasting. I remember the first time I ever fasted, I was generally told, you're not allowed to eat. I said, okay, um, but drink. You know, you've got to drink something. And so we went to McDonald's and got milkshakes. My wife and I were like, this is, I'll tell you, this fasting thing is not that bad at all. You know what I mean? I think we had like three milkshakes that day or whatever. But anyway... We've learned some things since then. But fasting allows you to begin meditating on God and God's past goodness. And so, no doubt, what Ezra and these people began to do is recall to mind all of the ways in the past that God showed himself strong on behalf of those that were serving him. And you can do that by going through the scripture and you see, wow, look how God showed up in this instance. And look how he showed up in that instance. And you remind yourself from the word. And then you begin to meditate on your own experiences. And the things that have happened in your life where God has showed up in your life in times past and showed himself strong on behalf of those who serve him. And what does God begin to do? Little by little, God begins to strengthen you. Or in this instance, he begins to strengthen them and to reassure them and to prepare them for this journey that is going to be ahead of them. Little by little, God used the time of devoted prayer 
to prep them for the journey of faith that they were about to set out on. And little by little, they begin to develop a confidence in their heart that God has indeed heard them and that God is going to lead them step by step. So notice verse 23, and he listened to our entreaty. Little by little, the confidence built in their heart that God was going to be with them and he was going to direct them. Now verse 24 continues, and it says, and so then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his Lord and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 100 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. So Ezra now divides up the valuables amongst these 12 leading men. And he makes each of them responsible for a portion. What he does is he entrusts them as stewards or managers of these things. You're going to carry this, and when we get to Jerusalem, I'll ask you for an account of what it is that I entrusted to you. They're stewards or they're managers. And so he measures out the items to them at the start of the journey, and when he gets to Jerusalem, he'll count it again at the end of the journey. And their responsibility is to faithfully and accurately guard the resources and then give them back. They're not theirs, but to faithfully and accurately guard them and then give them back, as you see in verse 34. And then the whole was counted and weighed and everything was recorded. These priests are instructed or uh, are entrusted with a great bit of responsibility. It's estimated, if this total wealth is about $5 million, that it's estimated that each of them were given about a half a million dollars to carry with them and to safely transport over this rough area that we mentioned some 900 miles. Now, I don't know, but perhaps some of these priests thought, oh, wait a minute, I'm not an armored truck. I'm not carrying this stuff here. Give it to somebody else. I don't want that responsibility. I'm a priest. And you came around and you recruited people to go back to Jerusalem. I signed up to be a priest, not an armored truck driver. But I would suggest to you that this entrusting of these resources is a very good test for these priests to find out just exactly where their hearts really are. You see, these priests have volunteered to return to the land and serve the Lord. And it's almost as if God responded. He said, that's great. I'm so glad you're volunteering. But first, I need to know if I can trust you. So first, you show me that I can trust you. Or perhaps we could say more accurately, since God knows everything anyway, we could say more accurately, hey, you know what? You need to learn first to be the type of person that I can trust. And so I want you to carry this half a million dollars with you. And we'll see if I can trust you. In the New Testament, Jesus instructed his disciples and he told them a parable. And the parable has come to be known as the parable of the dishonest steward. And in the very conclusion of that parable, it's found in Luke chapter 16, it says this. Jesus brings it to a head and he says, One who is faithful in very little will also be faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, well, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which 
is your own. So these men are entrusted with $500,000. And notice if we, we lay it on top of Jesus' parables, that's what Jesus would call very little. $500,000 put in their trust. He says, you've been entrusted with very little. Their faithfulness to care for that trust will be an indicator what they will do with very much. Remember again in the Luke 16 passage where he talks about true riches. Well, what are the true riches? It's not the $500,000. It's not $5 million. It's the souls of individuals. Because these men are going to be priests. And they're going to be the ones responsible for the care of the souls of thousands and thousands of Israelites. And Jesus says, essentially here, Ezra shows it, if I can entrust you with $500,000, some small minor thing, well then I can entrust you with the souls of men. Returning to Ezra, verse 28, he said, I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord. The God of your fathers, guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. And so the priests and the Levites, they took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So not only were these items that they were carrying holy or set apart, that's really what the term means, just simply set apart, this is dedicated for God. Uh, but notice what Ezra says to them. He says, you guys are also holy. You priests, you are holy and you are set apart. So you can see it there. He says, you are holy to the Lord. These guys had been set apart as God's priests. They'd been entrusted with the souls of those in their care. And then to a lesser extent, they were entrusted with this money. Now the New Testament believers, which is you and I, we are also called the priest of God. It says in First uh, Peter, it says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, referring to Christians, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You and I are called the priest of God. And as his priest, notice what that verse also says there, we are a holy nation. That means you and I, just like those priests back there in the book of Ezra, that we are set apart unto God for his work and for his purposes. Now you might look at that and say, oh, well, he must be talking about ministry leaders. Or he, meaning me or Paul, must be talking about elders or preachers or something like that. They're the priesthood. They're the ones that are called to holiness. The reality is that this is speaking of the priesthood of all believers. Every one of us are called God's priest. And if you are in Christ, you are a follower of Christ, then you are a holy person, set apart unto God for his good work. So let me ask you, what have you, as a priest of God, been called to be a steward of? What have you been entrusted with to guard and to make sure you bring it after that long journey and kind of give an account for it at the end of it? Well, the answer, among other things, the answer is this, the grace and the mercy of God. You have been entrusted with the grace and the mercy of God. And that means two things. Number one, in your own life. That means in your own life that you are ever dependent on God's grace and on God's mercy. And you never drift from it. You're entrusted with that. And the second thing is in the lives of others. That you and your life might be a channel through which God will work to bring others to a saving knowledge of His Son as well. 
That's ultimately what every one of us has been entrusted with. Now you can take this a step further, and each of us have different ministries and places where we are called uh, by God to serve and, and so on and so forth, and thus we have different responsibilities in those areas. But if you bring it to its baseline for all of us, those are the things, the grace and the mercy of God, every one of us as his children have been entrusted with. And are we communicating that? Are we passing that on to others? Have we been faithful in that regard with his grace and with his mercy? Are we living and dependent on his grace and his mercy? Well, that's what we're called to be. We're stewards of it. Verse 31 continues. It says, Then when we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month, excuse me, to go to Jerusalem, the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Miramoth the priest, the son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josebed, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binuai. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. Now, not the most exciting verses in Scripture, perhaps, those three or four verses there, but quite frankly, there are four different things, or at least three, if I remember, that we can praise the Lord for in those particular verses. Number of different reasons. Number one is because this was a group of people that had stepped out in faith. Where we started today in verse 21, they weren't quite sure, were we going to make it there? Are we going to get there safely? Oh my goodness, we really need a caravan of military people to help us and take us there. But to ask that would show that we don't really trust God, and so we're not going to ask, we're going to step out in faith. That's the first thing we praise the Lord for. Here's a group of people that have stepped out in faith. You know, sometimes younger believers you know, that we come in contact with, they'll step out in faith and they'll tell you, this is what I think God is doing. And you'll look at that and you're like, it ain't going to work. You know what I mean? You're like, everyone does that. And... But you don't want to discourage them. You love the fact that they want to step out in faith, and so you say, go for it and see what the Lord does. And so you commend them for that because they stepped out in faith. I remember a mission trip to Honduras. Uh, my wife and I, we took a group of college students. We go on a lot of trips together, apparently. This is great, wonderful. I'm not sure what we do with the kids, the poor kids, you know, but they're okay. They're all alive still. Uh, but we went to Honduras with a group of college students over uh, Christmas break. And while we were there, we, came, we ran into this particular lady. We were on this little island called Roatan. Uh, and pretty much people live on that island. That's all they ever, they don't really go anywhere else from the island. Uh, and so this lady lived on the island. And it's very common in this particular, what was it, Honduras, this country of Honduras, that uh, the husbands would have a wife, and she'd be great, and she'd raise kids and all that. And, you know, that was her purpose. And then they'd have a mistress as well, and she'd be the fun one whatever it may be. And this lady was a mistress, essentially. Uh, and, you know, he gave her a certain amount of money every year, so she, uh, or every month, I mean, so she could pay her bills and all that. And that was her job, in, in a sense. Well, she came to know Jesus. There was this group of missionaries that we were working with that administered to her. Uh, they met her physical needs. They ran clean water pipes to the neighborhoods, the villages that these folks were living in on this small island. And she heard this, she saw this, and she said, tell me why you're here, what you're doing. And they told her about Jesus, and she gave her life to Christ. But now she's got this situation. I'm sleeping with this married man, but he pays all my bills. And if I stop, he'll stop paying my bills. And then how am I going to live? How am I going to survive? What am I going to do? I'm on this little island. There's no jobs here on this little island. And so on and so on and so forth. And God just moved my heart in particular. And I'm sure he did other people's hearts as well. But he just moved my heart in particular that I wanted to do everything that I could possibly do to help this lady be successful 
in her walk with Jesus. And so we were there for a week, and we just poured into building this house that she could go live in so she wouldn't have to depend on this guy to be paying the bills so that she could have a house. And we carved out this little space on the missionary's land, and we built this lady a house. And remember, we moved that wall 15 times. You know, I was like, you're driving me nuts, lady. You know, but we love her, but she's can't make up her mind. I could tell you that. And she wanted a bigger room and a smaller room, bigger room and a smaller room. And I moved the same wall four times. And I said, it's staying, it's staying. You know what I mean? Get used to it or whatever. But here, you know, we want to commend people. We want to encourage people. Here's a group of guys stepping out in faith. And we want to commend them for that. So that's the first thing. Notice it says, we departed from the river Ahava. Praise the Lord. Secondly, Notice as the verse goes on, it says the hand of our good God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. They trusted in God for his protection. They stepped out and notice God's good hand was on them. He delivered them. He delivered them from the enemy. He delivered them from the ambushes. They weren't lucky. They didn't just have like a a good set of circumstances. We made it through, you know, and all of the hoodlums were on the other side of town that God protected them and he preserved them. So we praise the Lord for that. The third reason we praise the Lord in those verses, look at the last verse it's of what we read. It says, the whole was counted and weighed and the weight of everything was recorded. Every penny that was entrusted to these leaders was properly accounted for. Praise the Lord for their faithful service unto him. Each one of these guys had been entrusted with half a million dollars and they proved themselves faithful in those little things and now because of that, God's going to entrust them with a greater work as they come to Jerusalem and they serve him as priests. So there's plenty in these three or four verses that we can praise the Lord for. I'd like you also to notice one other thing in those verses. Notice when it says there, and we came to Jerusalem. You know, you could kind of read through that rather quickly. But remember, here they are in the promised land of God. God, you've been so good. You've been so faithful. G. Campbell Morgan says, God never fails those who act in full dependence on him. What a great phrase. What a great statement. What a great reminder. That God never fails those who act in full dependence on him. These were a people that were captives in a foreign land. They were captives in a pagan land, a place that abounded in the worship and service of false idols. And now they're standing in the city of God and they're preparing to worship at the house of God. Can you imagine the relief that must have come over Ezra, must have come over the leaders, must have come over really all of the people and must have just filled their hearts when they they stand there and they say to themselves, we made it. We arrived. We're here. Try and imagine the joy that must have been swelling in them when they said, God, we're here. And when they do get there, look at verse 35. It says that they offer sacrifices. Verse 35 says, At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. Now they make two different offerings here. The first offering they make, as you can see there in the beginning of the verse, is the burnt offering. We've talked about the burnt offering before, but just by way of reminder, the burnt offering was a general covering for sin. Just sort of this realization, look, we're sinful people coming into the presence of a holy God. 
That was sort of the purpose of the burnt offering. But the burnt offering was a complete consumption. Every part of the animal that was put on the fire was consumed in the fire. So nothing went back to the worshiper. Nothing went to the priest, as we see in some of the other offerings. And so the burnt offering also stands for a total consecration. God, I'm giving you every part of who I am. I want to be your child. I want to worship you. I want to serve you. That's what is communicated in the burnt offering. And so they do that. And then the second offering that they bring is a sin offering. You see that there at the end of the verse, 12 male goats. And the sin offering, differing from the burnt offering, this was an offering that was designed to deal with specific transgressions. Specific things that they know. Lord, you know what? There was that thing on the way here. And I just want to give it to you and I want to be right with you. And so by way of application for each of us, you know, the cross is the burnt offering. When we come back to the cross, we commemorate that when we celebrate communion. You know what, Lord? I'm only here because of your son and his total washing and cleansing of our lives. And we give ourselves completely to him. That's the burnt offering. The sin offering would be when we come back just on a moment by moment basis, every hour, maybe at the end of our day, and we say, Lord, you know my heart. You know, I drifted, you know, I strayed, you know, my heart wandered. Lord, you know, I responded in a way I shouldn't. Would you just wash me? Would you cleanse me? Would you restore that right relationship again? That's what these guys are doing here in these two offerings. Secondly, following the offerings, notice what it says in verse 36. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people in the house of God. So King Artaxerxes had given them letters, perhaps finances, whatever it may be, and now they pass that over to the leaders there in Jerusalem, those that Artaxerxes had sent ahead. And I have to wonder if these officials, you know, they see these 5,000, that's a pretty large crowd, 5,000 people coming into Jerusalem, and they're making their way up this mountain. At that time, uh, the temple area was not the nice flat temple mount area that you see if you go there or if you've seen it on TV, but there was just sort of a small little area that the temple kind of came up out of the mountain. And it's just this rocky, uneven terrain all the way up. And these 5,000 people are climbing up this particular mountain and they're gathering there and they're having these offerings. Now they're passing these commissions over to the non-Jewish leaders that Artaxerxes had stationed there in Jerusalem. And you have to wonder if these officials are reading these papers and they're sort of looking around and thinking, well, where's the military guard? Who went out with you? Who protected you on the way? You mean to tell me you fools traveled 900 miles with a bunch of kids and ladies and you brought all this money with you and you thought you were going to be okay? What's the matter with you people? And they said, well, the good hand of our Lord was upon us. And you see, what strikes me about that is here's a group of people that went out in faith, struggling with their faith. Remember, they desperately fasted. God, please, we don't want to dishonor your name by asking for a guard, but we sure would like to ask for a guard, Lord. You know, and they went out in faith, and now on the backside of that, what can they do? They can give a testimony. God showed himself strong in our lives, and he can show himself strong in your life as well. What is it you're dealing with? He'll show himself in your life. Keep trusting him. Keep walking with him. The good hand of God became a testimony for them, a testimony that could have never, they could have never had had they not trusted in him and went forth in faith. Now, Jewish tradition tells us that these exiles, as they made their way from Babylon to Jerusalem, that all along that way, they sang the Psalms on their journey. Specifically, 
they sang what is known as the Psalms of Ascent. Now, I know that the women's ministry did a Bible study not too long ago on the Psalms of Ascent. Is that correct? I see you're nodding. Great. Could you please tell us the Psalms of Ascent? No. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134. The Psalms of Ascent were actually written back during the days of David as the children of Israel would come to this area where the Temple Mount would eventually stand before that there was a tabernacle. And as they came into Jerusalem, because remember, you have to come to Jerusalem as a Jew for the three feasts. And as they would come into Jerusalem and they begin to make their way up the hills of Jerusalem, they would sing or they would recite the Psalms of Ascent, starting with Psalm 120 and moving through Psalm 134. Well, here now, 600 years later, Ezra is leading the Jews from Babylon and making their way to Jerusalem. And he has the people singing and reciting these Psalms of Ascent as well as they make their way to the sanctuary of the Lord and as they seek to bless the Lord. And so with this knowledge that as they're going, they're reciting these Psalms, I think it's helpful for us if we just sort of skim through some of these Psalms this morning. And so I think doing so sheds light on what's going on in their hearts. Because we know that the the Word of God, it says, is living and active, right? That is sharper than a two-edged sword. That the same passage you read last year can speak to your heart differently about different things this year because the word of God is living and active that the same word of God that spoke to folks in the first century speaks to you and I here in the 21st century because the word of God is alive and it speaks and it ministers and so we can imagine that the word of God was speaking to these guys heart about the things that they were dealing with and going through so if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 120 now there are five sections to the Psalms of Ascent. And the first section are the first three chapters, 120, 21, and 22. And that is sort of casting the vision, these particular Psalms. As these guys are making their way to Jerusalem, preparing to gather in the city of God. Remember, for Ezra, that means traversing a thousand miles of unsafe land or unsafe territory. But it speaks to them about God being their strength, God being their guide, God being their protector. Specifically, I want you to look at Psalm 121. It says this. Imagine Ezra saying this to the people. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let our foot be moved. He who keeps us will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Look at verse 7 of that chapter. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. Psalm 122 says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, which is 1,000 miles away. I was glad when they said it to me. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Can you imagine Ezra gathering this convoy together as they're about to set out and reading this particular psalm? Or for perhaps the whole number of them to assemble on a particular morning of the journey and to sing this psalm or these psalms to the Lord. The second section, Psalms 123 to 125, they focus on the people's consecration along the journey and when they get there. So with that in mind, imagine Ezra saying this, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, this is Psalm 123, 
as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we have had more than enough contempt. Imagine saying that after being in Babylon for some 70, 80 years. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Imagine if they were on a particularly scary stretch of the journey. The group singing these words, Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then we would have, they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Psalm 125, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. He protects them from this time forth and forevermore. The third section, Psalms 125 to 128, those Psalms deal with peace and enjoyment in the Lord. And so we read words like this, Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who would dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Psalm 128, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. The Lord bless you from Zion, not from this journey to Zion, from Zion itself, he'll bless you. You'll receive the fruit of your labor of your hands. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. You know, I imagine those last set of words as they're kind of making that downward slope. Uh, figuratively speaking, as they're sort of just on that final, we got one more day, guys, and we're going to be there in the morning. Fourth section of the psalm, it's Psalm 129 and following. You might call it sort of a stage of the enlargement of the heart. And what I mean by that is you've gone through this vision, one day we can be there, and sort of this consecration, all right, Lord, it's all about you. And you've gone through these stages, now you're getting close and God just sort of begins to expand your heart and you begin to see, what could God do? God's going to do it. And your heart is stirred in that particular place. And that leads people to explain, exclaim this. And this is from Psalm 130. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Yea, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with Him... It's plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Psalm 131. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mothers. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And then the final section, Psalms 132 to 134. This is what they would have sung as they actually entered into the land, as they make their way through the city and they begin to ascend the mountain of God. And imagine Ezra and these other leaders. They have traveled 900 miles, and now they finally set their foot on the holy mountain. And as one people, they say this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem, by the way. For there the Lord has commanded blessing, life forevermore. And no doubt, as they gathered 
for the first time collectively on the area of the Temple Mount there, Ezra brought the people together, and no doubt they were physically exhausted. They had just traveled every day, or at least six days a week, I would suggest, miles and miles and miles to get to where they have to, physically exhausted, but spiritually and emotionally alive because they have finally arrived. And no doubt Ezra gathers them and he leads them in this song from Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. These guys had made it. They are the second wave of returning Jews and they had gone out against all earthly odds and they made it. They had went out, they have went out in faith and God by that faith preserved them and he protected them and he brought them through their journey to the place that he had promised them. And there's a spiritual analogy here for us as men and women, young people that are on a similar faith journey. Because the journey that was undertaken by Ezra and the others, it does serve as a spiritual analogy of our own journey toward the place that God has promised us, heaven. And like Ezra, we too journey through the enemy's land on our way to the promised land. And as we do, we look to God. Because what does God do every step of the way? He sustains us. He protects us. And He strengthens us along the way. And like Ezra... And all the saints of old, we go forth in faith. We don't know exactly where we're going, but we hold on to the promise that God will go with us. And one day, like these returning exiles, by God's grace, we will arrive safely home in that heavenly kingdom. You know, yesterday with uh, Mrs. Barber's memorial service, that was the thing more than anything that struck me. You hear good things about her life and who she was and what she did and all these things and this great Christian woman. But the thing that struck me more than anything was just this supreme knowledge that this woman is in heaven. I remember with Frank Brands when we did his funeral just over a year or so ago, that this is a man that is in heaven looking into the face of his Savior. What great confidence that is. And we as his children, we're followers of Christ, we can go forth with the confidence he will bring us home safely. We will arrive to our Jerusalem, ultimately to our heaven, where we will live and we will dwell with the Lord. Won't that be a glorious day? And we can go forth with that with such a confidence. And we rejoice in that truth. Amen. And I know my friends here are struggling with the loss of their father. We can go through with that confidence. Amen, brothers and sisters. Father, we just thank you so very much for the confidence we have in Jesus. Lord, we put no confidence in ourselves. We put no confidence in our own strength. Lord, you entrust us certainly on this journey and you impart into us faith in our hearts and we know that to be the case certainly and we have to step out in that faith. But Lord, faith is a gift. Faith, Lord, by faith it empowers us to walk in your ways. And Lord, we just walk forward with a great confidence in who you are and what you want to do and that you want to take us safely home. Father, I pray that each of us, we would be more like an Ezra and more like these other men and women and young people that went out in faith. Or more like a Ruth and an Abraham and a Noah. Or like a Moses. A Bess Barber. A Frank Brands, Lord. Mr. Johnson, Lord, people that 
They don't know exactly where you want to take them, but they just want to walk with you and they want to go where you're going. And Lord, that we would step out in faith. I pray for the rest of us, Lord, as, uh, as others are stepping out in faith around us, Lord, that we would encourage them in those steps of faith, that we can do all that we can to enable them, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to root them on, to run the path alongside of them. But we don't want to just simply be nice Christian people here on the earth. But truly, Lord, it's the cry of our hearts that we would step out in boldness and in faith and see you accomplish great things through us. Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your spirit on our lives and on the lives of those we come in contact with. Lord, our prayer is that many might come to know the Savior. Lord, we pray that you would burden our hearts for the lost. Lord, too often we confess that we get distracted. And our eyes and our hearts and our minds are fixed on our days, day to day. Lord, our next week ahead of us, our great summer vacation plans. Lord, when in reality our eyes truly need to be fixed on heaven. And Father, I confess that for myself. So, Lord, bring a powerful conviction, but at the same time, a drawing to yourself as well. Make us men and women of faith, we ask in Jesus' name.